Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. I'm really pleased to be here today with David Chard, president of Wheelock College, founding dean of the Wheelock College of Education and Human Development at Boston University, and the author with Mary Churchill, who was Wheelock's vice president of academic affairs of When Colleges Close, which came out in 2020. David, it's great to have you here with us. Thank you, David. Good to be here. Could you start by just sharing a little bit about your your childhood growing up, um, you know, what you were thinking about for education, where you went, and then then a little on the start of your career? Sure. I grew up uh, in a big extended family in eastern Michigan, a rural part of eastern Michigan. My parents, um, though we owned a a dairy farm, my parents were auto workers and worked in a small non-unionized shop in a small town in the thumb of Michigan, for those people who who know uh, that state. And uh, Hold up the hand, right? That's exactly right. Um, And frankly, I don't think I ever really had much thought about education beyond public school, where I went to school. I had uh, one cousin who was of my same generation who attended Central Michigan University. So I went there, my sister went there. We just all followed in each other's footsteps. And Central Michigan was one of the former normal schools. And um, I majored in math and chemistry, but um, uh, that institution was really well known for teaching. And I liked kids. I enjoyed um, working with children. So decided that maybe teaching was a good uh, future for me. And that cousin that I mentioned, who was um, the first person in our family to go to college, was also a teacher. So I had um, lots of inspiration to become a teacher. And um, it was a good experience for me. And I became a teacher. I taught a number of years before going back to graduate school and getting a PhD in special education. And then uh, somewhat the rest is history. I had a few faculty positions before I went into administration. But um, yeah, that gives you a short snippet of my. And I think somewhere, yeah, 
and I think somewhere along there, you also had a time uh, teaching abroad. Is that right? Or, or working abroad? Yeah, I, I was a um, Peace Corps volunteer in from 1986 to 1990 in a small country in Southern Africa called Lesotho. Um, and I taught it for the first two years in a very uh, small village in the mountains and then did some ex- um, experimental work um, where I traveled from small school to small school and did demonstration teaching um, and provided resources for teachers who worked in essentially what we would think of as one-room schoolhouses. They were a bit different than the historic one-room schoolhouses in the U.S. in that in this case, one teacher often had 100 students um, because they would come from sort of a collection of kids from across villages. Um yeah, it was really an exciting time and very formative for me in my life, for sure. Absolutely. And tell us, when in your your career as a faculty member did you decide that you might want to move into the academic leadership ranks? Yeah, I was a, I was a faculty member at the University of Oregon in the early 2000s, and that was my alma mater. That's where I got my PhD. And um, the dean was stepping down, and they... The university wasn't certain they wanted to move immediately to a search, so they they asked the provost asked three of us to visit her office, and she said, two of you have to go into administration. Who wants to be the dean? Who wants to be the associate?" And uh, I became <laughs> I became the associate dean for academic affairs, and really loved faculty development and curriculum and programmatic development, and um, served with a great uh, team of faculty and administration. And it was really, I thought, just a um, a step along the way, I would go back to being just a faculty member after that. But then I was recruited to being the dean of a new school uh, of education at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, where I got basically to build my own institution, which really was an incredibly exciting time in my life. Um, uh, So that was kind of what cemented the future for me, was that opportunity. And so that fir- that first step did did she have you all draw straws? To, how, how did she decide which of the two of the three? It's funny, you know. I think she was an interim provost because she was a long time um, statistician faculty member at the University of Oregon, and I want to say she remained in the provost office for a long, long time. But I think she was serving as interim at the time. She didn't make us draw straws, but it did seem a little bit like that, like. Um, uh, you know, and, and the third person who did not become an administrator, I think he left there feeling better than the, <laughs> the other two of us. Right. I was going to say who, who ran for the door first, right? It's... <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a great experience though, as a great institution. Yeah. Um, and t- tell us about creating your, your own, uh, you know, having a chance to build your own school. I, I was fortunate, you know, to be on the founding team for the newest of the Claremont colleges when it was set up in 2000. And so being a chance to be in a startup like that in higher ed is rare, right? And, and so I would have thought that would have been very exciting, particularly a, a really well-resourced and, and, and great institution like SMU. Yeah, it, it, I, I can't... Um say enough about how exciting it was. We had a new provost um, and a, a uh, um, wise and experienced president um, uh, who is still there and was much beloved by the SMU community. 
I didn't know then, David, how important it was to serve a president that you um, understood and could um, support and who was as good at his job as Gerald Turner, who's the president at SMU. Um, and he was just an incredible mentor, as, as was the provost. But um, yeah, we had six faculty members. We were a department within um, the College of um, Humanities and Science. And uh, he had been approached by a group of superintendents and asked whether or not um, SMU would open a school of education. And then I think three weeks after I took my position, President Turner called me to tell me that a family had offered us, uh, I think it was $25 million um, to set, to name the new school and and that was the first of two significant gifts that family gave the Simmons family, and um, I, I, you know, it, it it was just a tr- game changer. I mean, almost any decision I made that the university supported. Um, we went from having 24 students to, I think when I left, we had over 1,100. We started with six faculty and a handful of staff. And when I left, I think we had 180. I mean, it was, it was just a period of tremendous growth and excitement. And, um, and SMU, you know, is really the, at the time, was the only uh, university of its type in the city of Dallas and Dallas, despite the... Um, the 2008 uh, uh, recession, Dallas was just cooking on all cylinders. And so people were really excited about supporting the university. It was, yeah, a magical time, honestly. I, I can't say enough about how exciting it was. So what, what period were you there? 2007 to... What, 20- what period were you at Aston? Yeah, 2007 to 2016. So just before the recession, and then um, I left in 2016 to become president at Wheelock. And and as you were looking at the opportunity at Wheelock, had you been thinking about becoming a college president? Um, obviously, you'd had a, 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 it sounds like an unbelievable run at SMU. Had you, had you been looking and how did that opportunity come up? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I um, had interviewed a bit. I had interviewed for the provost position at SMU, and they chose a different um, candidate. And I, um, I felt like it was a. I, I felt like there was a good time to leave, like a time when you were, when people were really excited and there was momentum. And I didn't want to wait until people were excited about me leaving. And um, I think, you know, I think that's a key issue in leadership is knowing when you've done everything you possibly can do. Um, And you've not exhausted everyone, which is another, I think, common problem where you have so many good ideas and no one knows where to, how to tell, you no. Um, And so I applied to Wheelock. I I was um, excited about it. You know, um, Deans of schools of education don't often get hired to be presidents. Um, it's a, a bit of a rare rarity, I would say. But Wheelock's um, mission and history just was so aligned with who I was. You know, it was a place that had prepared teachers since the late 1800s, um, really cared about 
the preparation of human service professionals had had branched into social work and a few other things and it just felt like a really great place david and and i love boston i i own some land in massachusetts or some property in massachusetts so i was familiar with um boston and felt really good about um all every aspect of it i knew that there were some challenges at the college but what small college doesn't have challenges i mean it it was um so that wasn't daunting enough to me to put me off. And um, so I, I applied and um, was grateful for the opportunity to become the 14th president there. Well, I'd like to ask you a little more about that process. But first, you, you said a little about Wheelock's history, and, and you, you lay this out really nicely in the book. But for the listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, could you say yeah. a little more about its founder and that that you know, what it stood for that, that obviously attracted you from a great, you know, a great position that you had at SMU. Yeah, of course. So Lucy Wheelock, um, as an adult, uh, was, you know, a, a small, a diminutive woman, 84 pounds, I think. She grew up in Vermont uh, to a, a relatively wealthy family. But in 1888, she uh, made a choice. She could either go to a uh, uh, one of the few colleges in, I think Wellesley may have been the, one of the few colleges where women could actually be admitted um, to a higher ed institution. She chose instead to pursue a path to become a preschool teacher and was um, really excited about what was happening in early childhood development in the late 1800s and also spent quite a bit of time in Boston getting to know the challenges of being a new new immigrant to a city that was benefiting tremendously um, uh, from the Industrial Revolution, but a lot of immigrant families were struggling. And and she felt that her mission in life was to educate preschool educators um, to become, uh, to sort of help lift families up by, through their children, giving their children opportunities to be educated. And um, she believed that that was sort of the course for improving society. And, uh, and was, you know, used her means to uh, learn from people like Elizabeth Peabody, who was a well-known early childhood educator at the time, and um, started a, a school for kindergarten teachers, basically to train kindergarten teachers. And uh, she studied with Froebel, the German um, developmentalist who, who really sort of founded the notion of kindergarten in Germany. But the interesting thing about Lucy Wheelock is she was not dogmatic. Like she studied with Froebel, but when she came back to the United States, developmental psychology was also beginning to take off. And she was really interested in how she could use evidence to change what was happening in her preschool and in her preschool teaching. So for uh, she was president of Wheelock College for 50 years, if you can believe that. And um, <laughs> my predecessor was there 24. I thought that was a long time. My goodness. It's amazing. Well, you know, and she really moved it from a, uh, a training academy for, for kindergarten teachers into a a fully fledged college was was right around the time when she retired, and um, she was really an amazing human being. I wished I'd had a chance to meet her. There is one living alum who uh, knew her, met her. Um, she died in 19, wow. Lucy Wheelock died in 1939, and she had been the chair of the um, 
Education Committee of the League of Nations. She she really was a a, a powerhouse, quite honestly. And and Wheelock, um, you know, listen, she never thought Wheelock was ever going to be a university, a college. That was not her intention. And so I think she was quite proud when that happened. And then, um, you know, I I remind our alumni community and our faculty and such that Lucy Wheelock was really. Uh, not averse to change. She was, you know, constantly sort of seeking improvements and change. And uh, she wanted society to change, quite frankly. She saw the the challenges with it and thought that higher education was at least in part a major answer for that. So, yeah, I, I, like I say, I don't know her, but everything I've ever read of her is really quite impressive. So, and obviously that that legacy is is an incredible attraction but you know you said at all small colleges like chatham we like tuition dependent institutions we know it's a challenging environment but as you enumerate in the book, I mean, the, the challenges Wheelock had in 2016 when you were looking at this, I mean, it had, you know, a turnover of, of academic leadership that had been, you know, pretty revolving door scandals in the Boston Globe, um, you know, it was obviously had some financial challenges anti-Semitism charges. I mean, you know, it, it was quite a list. It, it certainly would have given me great pause, particularly with a with the kind of support that you'd had at SMU. And and, and so I'm just curious as you, how fully did you feel you understood the situation coming in and what was it that gave you the confidence to take that on, you know, uh, that, to come in, in into that situation and feel like you could turn it around? Yeah, it's a really great question. I, I think part of it was, um, I let me begin by saying I knew about all of it. The trustees and the search committee were very upfront. Um, there were some uh, faculty uh, administrator challenges around um, uh, relationships um, and keep in mind, David, this was sort of the initial um, uh, on-campus challenges around Black Lives Matter and colleges and universities yep. were trying to take very seriously, as Wheelock was, the the um, protests on the part of um, students, particularly students of color and their allies, to change the uh, environments that were that existed on college campuses, and and Wheelock was the president was taking that very seriously. There were some um, yep. racial and ethnic challenges uh, within the faculty, um, and uh, those were really very corrosive for the faculty. I would say um, faculty members shared with me some of them that they would only come to campus to teach, and then they would go home and stay away and it really ate kind of at the heart of the institution. And I think the, um, the president at the time tried really hard to solve those issues. Um, it wasn't clear to me that they were solvable from the perspective of those who were involved in the challenges. And so, but, but, um, but overall I didn't see that as, um, I saw the legacy and the potential at Wheelock as much more powerful than those challenges. And, um, and by and large, the faculty were amazing people who had dedicated, they were, it was a veteran faculty. They had dedicated decades of their lives to 
this mission of improving the lives of children and their families. And um, it was very compelling. I'll, I'll just be honest with you. And, and I yep. also had a board of trustees who were mature. Many of them, some of them had been honorary trustees for four decades. They were very engaged in the college. It was a great location. It had great relationships with the Boston Public Schools. So there were many, many good things to say about Wheelock, um, despite some of the challenges that were happening at the time. And, um, and I think that was true even, even after, you know, I got there and got to work. I mean, I think there were a lot of very, very positive elements. The previous president had built a, um, a, a student enrollment, kind of built student enrollment. 2015 was the peak enrollment the college had ever seen. And, um, you know, that was part of the challenge that we also had the demographics of New England and the northern tier of states were not working in our favor. And it was hard to repeat that year on year. Um, so uh, it was a mixed story, but I, I but one in which I thought I could play an important role. And I, I really did think we could um, lead the college into the next sort of few decades. Of, and I'd spoken to former presidents who said, you know, they had experienced similar challenges. So it was sort of the story of small college running on a thin margin. Um, and uh, Right. Yeah. No, uh, uh, peaks and troughs. And yeah. But, but in terms of, you know, your analysis of it and the, the financials, right? So, so one of the things you mentioned is that unlike, so Chatham, when it, it like Wheelock had been all women, and then when it decided it wasn't going to go co-ed, adding graduate programs, adding online had really been a huge part of saving the university. Um, you mentioned Wheelock really didn't diversify. It didn't move heavily into online. What, why, why had it, now, obviously, it valued the core, but you know those were things Simmons down the road. A lot, a lot of other institutions were were doing. Why had it had you know stayed so focused in, in those few areas of education, social work? Yeah, I, you know, I I don't know that I've ever gotten a um, complete answer to that question. I think there are a couple of reasons, though, and and this is a bit of hype. Um, uh, conjecture on my part. One is that I think Wheelock, um, its social work program and its teaching program were a regional draw. Most of our students came from upstate New York and Connecticut and the New England state, other New England states, uh, and largely Massachusetts. And I think, um, they had never, you know, be, being a veteran, uh, faculty and over a 12 year period had six academic affairs vice presidents, um, I don't think there was much traction to do to make bold change um, within the academic leadership. I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is, you know, just up the road, Simmons University, which made a, a dramatic move into online education, really relied heavily on its um, all women business focus um, for its online programs and relied on a third party provider. Uh, to you, which was recently in the news for purchasing edX, but to you, I think was yep. at the time going out and finding its clients. So they were hand picking clients, and um, I suspect they looked at a place like Wheelock that was working in relatively um, uh, professions that did not result in high income levels. And thinking, we've got on the West Coast, USC, with a large 
to you online. I don't think they thought Wheelock was the kind of place they wanted to invest. So it was both lack of opportunity, but I also think perhaps the um, failure of not having consistent academic leadership over those years that sort of arrested Wheelock in this, um, you know, residential face-to-face sort of focus. Um, They're good at what they did, but it wasn't going to ultimately drive enough revenue to keep the place moving forward. And in terms of the demographics, because you lay out in some detail how it had gone from a peak in 2015 and then very quickly fell off. When you look back in retrospect, I I was fortunate to have on the podcast, Nathan Graw, who now, of course, is everywhere for his work on demographics. But how aware were you of sort of that cliff that was was really just hitting at the time? I mean, now we've seen all of the failures that came subsequently in New England and whatnot, but, but that and the financial challenges, did you have a, a really clear sense coming in of just how short your runway was going to be? I did not. I mean, in all honesty, I did not. I was not aware of Nathan's work until after um, I became president at Wheelock. And uh, I I don't think I fully understood the um, what would happen with a robust year in 2015, the need for faculty numbers to sustain those four years of students and a a fairly strong graduate student body. Um, And while we were experiencing year-on-year lower enrollments, right, that would not sustain that, um, uh, the expenses associated with that 2015 enrollment. I think that was where my calculation was not as strong as it needed to be. We were not, I mean, we, Wheelock had, at the time of the merger with Boston University, we, our endowment was about 63 million and, um, and about 18 million of that was unrestricted. So we would have had to dip into that unrestricted endowment to cover our um, budget shortfalls in the next five to six years had we not merged. And it would have left, we probably could have done it successfully, but I don't believe two things would have been challenging. The pandemic would have been very difficult for us. But also I think um, predicting where we were going to be five or six years down the road with continued low enrollments, this is based on the demographic work that uh, Nathan has done, um, we would not have recovered easily. It would have been a very difficult um, And ultimately, we may have gone the way of some of the other institutions that have had to close. And um, that's where I think the board and and I felt it was better to be out out, up front with that and preserve as much of our enterprise value as we possibly could early on, rather than waiting until we were desperate and perhaps not as good a partner as we needed to be. The, the other thing that I think might have put a lot of candidates off um, when, when you were first looking at it was the, I, the the meeting you mentioned with several of the trustees before you signed, where they, they gave you the agreement 
that mentioned that one of your chief duties was potentially working yourself out of a job by looking for a partner. So I'm curious how how you thought about it. That that that's that's a pretty rare occurrence in higher ed. That that's a part of hiring a new president. And so I'm just curious how how you approach that and how you thought about it in coming into the room. Yeah. So it goes back to the point that the board uh, disclosed everything to not just to me, but other candidates um, who, who were they were considering. And they told me that all of the candidates stayed with the search, even knowing that they that the board had been in discussions about potential partnerships even before the presidential search was completed. I thought it was um, admirable, quite honestly. I mean, you, you know, many trustees of small colleges and universities are really committed to the work that they do, that they're volunteering for those institutions. Many of them are donors to the institutions. They care about their own investments. And, and I think um, I found it quite admirable that the board, which was about half alumni and half um, friends, non-alumni, I found it admirable that they were actually considering it. And um, I didn't think it would have to happen at the time. Um, But I thought um, if it did have to happen, it was nice to know that the board wasn't going to be surprised by it, that they had actually um, started those conversations early. There there was not unanimous agreement on the part of the board prior to the presidential search um, about whether they needed to go in that direction or not. But um, I felt like if, if, if I couldn't um, help lead Wheelock to a more financially sustainable place that the board at least was primed for that discussion. And and, indeed that was true. Um, I think when I approached them at the end of 2016 and said, I wanted to, devote our annual retreat, which is always in March, um, to a discussion about our data, our, our financial data, our enrollment data, that I was not, um, I wasn't sticking my neck out too far. Like, I think they felt they were ready for that conversation. Um, so I guess I would, I would, one of the other unusual thing. Yep. I was just going to say, I I guess, go ahead. I would say that I didn't feel like it was, I felt like that they were telling me this in a way so that I knew that there wasn't um, risk if I decided that that was the direction we had to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great way of, of framing it. So I thought one of the other unusual things about those first few months for you in the transition was that you made the decision, even with all of those challenges you were facing on the faculty side and and those other issues and the financial, to serve as your own interim vice president of academic affairs, along with being a first-time college president. So obviously you don't need a lot of sleep, but I'm just curious, you know, that, that making that decision at that time, what, what, what you were, how you were thinking about it, because it, it seemed like an awful lot to be handling all at once and by yourself in, in those two roles. Yeah. Well, um, so, uh, when I arrived, David, the, the three, um, deans, three of the deans were serving as the vice president for academic affairs. So they were doing two jobs. They were both the dean of their school and they were serving, um, in this kind of collaborative role as, um, uh, the vice president for academic affairs. And I think 
they were doing a, a, a good job of it, but it was very um, tactical, right? They were um, trying to just make sure everything got done in terms of accreditation requirements and such. Um, and, and I actually felt more comfortable in the academic affairs role than I had than I did in the president's role because I had never been a president before. But I had led an academic institution, so I knew how that worked. That felt very familiar to me. So that did not seem to me to be a big lift. Um, I knew ultimately I needed someone who was creative, who was probably coming out of either a dean's position or had been in a provost office at another institution to step into that um, vice president for academic affairs role. And we started a search that winter. Um, and and we, had a na- we had a national uh, applicant pool. And I think, um, and I took each of them to dinner during their, the th- three finalists I took to dinner and explained to them that I wasn't certain we would uh, remain a, an independent institution and that they needed to know that and that they could withdraw their candidacy. All of our candidates stayed engaged in the search, which um, was impressive. I think they all, they all came from backgrounds in higher education uh, at institutions where they're, that this had always been part of the conversation. So um, yeah, anyway, I, I, back to your original question, it was probably a little unconventional for me to do both of those things, but it was either that or, um, you know, I needed the deans to, to really focus on the health of their own faculty and students and felt like it was something I could manage um, effectively. And obviously, I, I want to ask you about uh, the partnership process and identifying Boston University. But before that, I was really intrigued by one of the things you did in that first year. I think it was called We Build, um, an all-day event where you you canceled class and you had all the faculty, staff, students together. And and I'm I'm curious about where the inspiration for that came and and how you organized it. You know, it, it seems seemed like a a, a really uh, innovative step. Yeah, I can't take credit for that. So I'll I'll tell you how that happened. So um, again, think about the context, 2016, 2017. Um, Black Lives Matter was active. We had a growing um, uh, student body of color on campus and um, and the uh, faculty, staff and students were very eager to, um, I think, think of a way you have to understand Wheelock was populated with faculty who were all developmentalists, right? They believed that the way you grew as an institution was the same way you grow as an individual. You learn, you support one another in that learning, you bring experts from outside, et cetera, et cetera. So the faculty assembly or faculty senate, I believe it was, um, uh, decided that what we could do was to host a, a day of development for the campus um, that would be open to everyone, faculty, staff, and students. And, um, they essentially went about organizing based on their expertise and thinking about the needs of the campus. We had a number of students who were um, uh, in in marginalized groups, like part of the LGBT community, 
Um, there was a great, you know, a strong movement around using people's um, uh, preferred pronouns, but a lot of faculty had no experience in this area. So that was an example of a session that was focused on that. There was um, quite a bit of focus on uh, academic direction, like where we might go as a faculty, what new areas we might explore. I think there was, um, anyway, my contribution was simply closing the college for a day and making sure that people knew there were no <laughs> classes, that everyone could dedicate their time and energy to this. Some people participated, some did not. Um, but I think overall, the faculty felt like it was a, uh, a way that Wheelock had always met challenges, um, was to come together and, uh, I mean, you know, small New England college often... Um, Real challenges were dealt with through town halls and, you know, discussions in a very New England tradition. And uh, this was just a full day of, of opportunity to, you know, for people to express themselves, to think about how we were going to work together. And all of this was pre any discussion about the, I, I will say, uh, I'm a, I was about to say it was all pre-discussion, pre any discussion about merger or closure. But in fact, in September of that year, when I first became president, I met with the faculty um, as a whole and explained to them that I thought we had about three years to radically change our programs so that we were more attractive to today's student. Otherwise, I thought we would close. Um, and that was right about the right timing. Like I, I knew that we had to act yeah. quickly and I don't think people were ready to act quickly. Um, so yeah. they didn't. Um, and so from, 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 yeah, from that kind of September where you laid it out and you thought, you know, it's aggressive, but three years, you, you have this kind of momentum building thing. You have people excited in, in this, we build day by December, you were, you, you, in your board meeting, you'd said, you know, you were recommending to the board that you devote your March meeting to the retreat. And you were, were obviously seriously going to look at uh, a, a partnership. And so what was it that in those few months, your first months as president that led you to, to pivot so quickly to this other, uh, other approach? Well, we were looking closely at discount rates, which many presidents do, and, and what, what's happening there. Um, I think I mentioned in the book, one of our honorary um, board members said to me, uh, think about the enterprise value of the institution. It may never be better than it is right now, right? And um, that was in my head. And we were also thinking about how quickly we could turn to new programs and um, and you know stand up new programs and attract a student body uh, that would drive greater revenue, um, and and we were sitting on you know a fair amount of real estate. Quite honestly, we had three parcels in the town of Brookline, which is a fairly high uh, value um, zip code area. In addition to the four four plus acres in Boston that were the main campus. And we also decided that we should think about whether or not that real estate could play a role in um, helping us either to sustain ourselves as an independent institution or whatever solution we eventually reached. But 
it was that combination. And then the fact that I had hired a whole new admissions team and they were, you know, they were struggling. And I think struggling to get attention, you know, Boston's a tight market, like with a lot of competition and um, some of the, some of the, at the top of our talk, some of the challenges that had been exposed in the Boston Globe were making it difficult to attract students to Wheelock. Um, so that, that was when I thought maybe this is what the board, what, these were the details the board was paying attention to when a year earlier they had entered into some initial conversations with other potential partners. Um, and it felt like it was probably right to at least reopen the conversation, even if it didn't result in any immediate change. And given that you were, you know, it wasn't desperate, you mentioned you had significant unrestricted endowment and, and, and whatnot, but, but that you could see the trend lines were negative. The, the decision to invest half a million dollars in an outside partner for this process, that was a pretty bold one by you and the board. What what made you decide that you needed an external resource for this, and and how did you end up choosing uh, EY Parthenon to be the partner? Yeah, it's a really good question, David. So um, the timeline was this: in March, we met at our retreat and discussed the data, really the demographic data. Um, at that time, Mills College was had announced it had a structural deficit, I think, of $9 million. And um, there were a couple of, uh, um, there seemed like there was at least one other college that had announced it was struggling financially. And um, we put all those data on the table at the retreat. Then um, we, had, we had put together a real estate team to look at our real estate value to really sort of understand what our assets were. And... Um, they came back to us in our May meeting, uh, um, without giving you too many details, but they came back to us in our May meeting and said they thought it was important to consider selling the president's house and, and a historic uh, residence hall in Brookline. Um, so they made that recommendation. It was at the same time that we wanted to um, uh look carefully at our data, our internal data, our finances. And we thought it was kind of unfair to ask our own financial team to do that. It was sort of like, um, how easy would it be for them to really uh, reveal any challenges when it was their livelihood as well? And so what we wanted to do was bring in a consultant. So we we did an RFP um, to a few consulting groups, um, and EY Parthenon came forward as, I think, the team that probably had the most higher ed experience. The principal, uh, one of the principals had been, a, um, had been a chief of staff for two Harvard presidents. They understood the Boston landscape quite well, and... Um, and I think they were eager to help us, quite honestly, help us not necessarily with any predetermined um, outcome, but they were eager to help us figure out how to provide the data necessary to the board of trustees for decision making. And I think um, the board chair at the time, Kate Taylor and I decided that was really important because we didn't believe that we could make um what were going to be potentially consequential decisions 
without really having the data set up to do that. And, and that's what we were looking for. Um, and, and the half a million was n- not insignificant, as you can imagine. Um, but I think the board, I did have a number of financial experts on my board, and I think they all agreed that that was really minor if it meant we could sustain the mission and the identity of Wheelock College somehow. And in the book, you shared that, you know, even before you'd arrived, the board had had some discussions with other institutions. And, and, and so obviously there had been some work done in thinking about this. As you entered the process, did you have a, a range of possible models in mind besides staying independent? Uh... Not, not really. I mean, um, EY Parthenon helped us think about uh, um, pursuing um, the independent versus merger categories. And so we then laid out, we had a small strategy team of faculty, staff, and uh, trustees. Um, and we laid out what independent options might be. We could look exactly the same as we did. We could eliminate our graduate programs and really double down on undergrad. We could eliminate our undergrad programs and all of the bells and whistles that go along with a four-year program and focus um, primarily on graduate education. Um, And so we wanted we wanted EY Parthenon to help us see what that would look like and what our enrollment numbers would have to be in order to um, produce enough revenue to, to do that. Um, and then we also thought it was worth returning to some of those partners that have some of those potential partners that the board had begun speaking with, um, who were all in close proximity to, to Wheelock at the time. Um, but, uh, one of our trustees said, I don't think that's a good idea. He said, I think what we should do is use a competitive model. Um, to decide on the, if we go in the direction of a merger, we should use a competitive model and send uh, requests for interest to um, institutions all over the country. And at that time, Emerson had a campus in Los Angeles and, um, you know, all of these institutions were beginning to grow um, satellite campuses. And we thought, well, maybe given Wheelock's proximity to the Longwood Medical Center, someone somewhere in the United States might look at it and say, hmm, maybe we could have a nursing school there, or maybe we could do something that would be related to the medical field. Uh, As it turned out, that's not what happened, but um, we sent out 62, I think, letters of uh, inquiries of interest um, to institutions across the country that felt like they were financially strong enough they could at least seriously consider such a move. Um, Yeah. Um, and, and I'm curious, you, you mentioned in the book a couple of examples that came from a right about that same time that were sort of successes nearby with the, the School of, MF, of the MFA and Tufts and the Boston Conservancy and the Berkeley College of Music. That's right. Did you have a chance to, to meet with any of the leaders of those? Did, were, were you thinking at the time about, you know, are there lessons we can take from these in terms of how we think about a model? Absolutely. In fact, I met with um, the President Ortner, who was the president of the Boston Conservatory uh, and uh, ultimately merged with Berkeley um, College of Music. And, you know, they were next door to one another. In fact, they, you know, in Boston, you have these blocks that are all just building after building. 
they actually butted up against one another. And um, uh, I spent a great deal of time with him and, and uh, talking about their, their experience, the things that, um, you know, communicate importance of communication to everyone, the importance of trying to be as transparent as possible uh, issues around the media in Boston, because higher ed is the industry of our city. Um, not unlike Pittsburgh, frankly, uh, in some, some regards, the news yep. media wants to create a story out of it. And, um, uh, yeah, so definitely, um, took, I did not speak with anybody from MFA school of the MFA and Tufts, but I, um, I do know that a number of folks, um, there, it was, that was a particularly challenging merger. Um, I think on the part of the boards, maybe of the school of the museum of fine arts, but there were lessons that were in the, um, on the minds of people, uh, that we spoke with attorneys and such that we interviewed, um, as part of our process. So, um, yeah, we, we tried to learn from those experiences and, um, and, and hopefully did. I mean, I think we, you know, it's not like we didn't make any mistakes at all, but I think we we avoided many of the major challenges that have cropped up in, in some of these um, processes. Yep. And I'm, I'm, I'm also curious, one of the things Wheelock had going for it as a small institution was being a member of the, the colleges of the Fenway, the six yeah. institutions that were sharing a lot of of services, back office functions, and and other things, um, that to me would have seemed. I, I mean, a that's a a great thing to have, and given that you'd been working together well, that would have seemed like a natural place to have gone for potential partners. Now, I know some of them were were not that different from Wheelock in terms of their size and and their resources, but I'm curious as you were looking at the models, you mentioned there was independence and there was full merger, somewhere in between there is something like the College of the Fenway where you're sharing things. And so I'm just curious how that might have factored into your thing. Yeah. Well, the truth is, you know, the Colleges of the Fenway is more than 20 years old. And the presidents of those institutions always looked for ways in which we could squeeze every possible benefit out of the consortium as possible. And every single institution annually documented the the real financial benefit of being part of that consortium and every one of us benefited from it uh it was a net gain uh for sure and you know the value of having five other presidents to consult with on issues behind closed doors where it was uh we could say anything we needed to to one another and and get honest feedback about things um it, it was truly invaluable. And I'm not allowed to disclose, you know, um, who were the proposers, but, um, you know, those institutions were create, they, they had creative presidents who uh, were thinking of ways in which to um, help us and, and think about our future. And, um, but as you say, they, some of them have their own challenges and some of them, one is a public institution and that, that institution has its own challenges because they they are administered by a board of regents, kind of at a state level. So, um, and it, and one of those institutions, Mass Pharmacy, and uh, you know they were 
creating campuses in central Massachusetts and New Hampshire. So there's a lot going on there, right? And um, But in yep. the end, I would say those presidents were incredibly valuable confidants and, and supporters um, and, and mm-hmm. cared about the future of Wheelock and what we were trying to do as well. So, yep. and, and you mentioned that, you know, with the trustee and, and with uh, EY Parthenon, you made the decision to send an RFP out or a, a letter from you to, to over 60 institutions of, of all different types and nationally. You know, one of the things about a process like this, and obviously you, you would have NDAs and stuff with it, but still, you know, keeping something like this without creating a panic is not easy. And that this is a small world, right? And so that that many letters out there, I, I'm curious, you know, the decision to do that, h- how you came to the number, the the types of institutions you sent, and sort of the balance of, yeah, we want to optimize the potential competitors, but what are the risks of that? Because I don't think there have been a lot of things done with that process before in higher ed before. So I, I'm just curious how, how you thought about that. Yeah, so uh, we did a couple of things. One, we decided we would need to act really swiftly. Keep in mind, this is um, 2017 in the summer. Uh, and we started the really started that process after determining that an independent WELOC was probably not viable. So um, we decided that we would, uh, we would send out uh, RFA letters to a wide range of institutions, and we would give them a very short window in which to respond. So they would sign an NDA, we'd give them a short window uh, with which to respond. And the fact that many people were traveling, as you know, university and college presidents are often traveling in June, fundraising, international travel, et cetera. Um, we recognize that that probably... Uh, included the risk that some people would never see the letter, right? They would not even be home and receive it. And that in some instances, uh, um, well, and our hope was that by moving quickly and swiftly that we would reduce the likelihood that the news would get to, um, would get uh, leaked somehow. So that was sort of our rationale. We we elected to use the um, AAU list, the American Association of Universities, primarily because they represented financially stable institutions um, with a long, you know, fairly long and positive history of, of success. We then added, we sort of sorted out some of those institutions that had a re- religious affiliations that probably were not aligned with Wheelock's sort of history. And um, then we added a few institutions to that based on conversations with the archdiocese in Boston, um, as well as uh, a number of institutions around Boston that we thought uh, would be, we should um, at least give them the, consider them uh, candidates if they felt like this would be an option for them. So what ultimately resulted, I, I believe we also um, did not, I think we eliminated public institutions from other states because we thought it would just be too big of a challenge yeah. um, to do sort of the interstate commerce issues. But um, yeah, and ultimately got to 62. And I and it generated some interest. I got phone calls from the St. Louis area yeah. and from the Pacific Northwest from presidents who wanted to know what we were doing. <laughs> and, um, you know, there was some curiosity in the end, we got um, initially seven proposals, and then 
one of those dropped out and we were left with six proposals and the six proposals were all from greater Boston. So um, I think knowing about the real estate, where it was located and such was not, a. I think that was important and institutions that knew us best paid attention to that issue for sure. And, and who knew. And I guess I I understand. Yeah. I, I understand the, the desire through speed, both from your financial urgency and trying to keep it quiet. But, but I, I guess I, for such a consequential thing, mm. I, I would wonder, you know, by, by limiting it to two weeks, do, did you feel there's a risk that people who could be really great partners, not just because they're traveling, but just a, a decision of this kind to be serious. And obviously you weren't asking for a full detailed proposal, but, but right. to even look at that when, you know, you've just finished an act, it just seemed like a, an awful heavy ass to, to turn something around like that in that period of time. Yeah, we were, I, I think we were hedging on the fact that it was a letter of interest. You know, would you be, of in, would you be interested in submitting a full proposal? So yes, it, it, I, my bigger concern was that people wouldn't get a chance to see it. Uh, rather than that they wouldn't um, wouldn't respond if they did see it. The few yep. presidents that I spoke with and chancellors that I spoke with said they um, they were not in a place to to do this. Um, but I but I do think that uh, um, those who did read it, two weeks is a enough time to decide whether or not you would even think about it seriously. And there was no obligation if you right. sent a letter of interest. Right. It wasn't committing you to go further if it turned out it didn't fit, right? That's exactly right. So, yeah, we, we talked about this for quite a while as a as a board and ultimately decided that moving swiftly was more important than worrying too much about that um, that issue. So, yeah. I, I'm, I think one of the parts I found fascinating in the book about the process was um, the three tiers of criteria you developed for assessing the proposals, the, the sort of must-have non-negotiables, the, the middle tier, which you would really like to have, but you weren't sure if you could get it, and then the lower tier, and how you decided which things fell into which tiers. I, I think a lot of institutions in this, they might have put the employees and, and trying to make sure they were taken care of in that, that top tier. And, and so I'm, I'm just, I imagine those must have been, you know, very challenging, but, but, you know, long discussions to, to come up with that list and, and what you would like to have as opposed to what you felt you, you absolutely had to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we knew that if we were going to be successful, we couldn't demand too much. We were not in the position to be demanding. We were in the position looking for a merger partner. So we thought long and hard about the things that were most critical and that we were most eager to see included in any kind of any kind of a partnership agreement. And that really was about the mission, legacy, and identity of the college. Um, and uh, and then I think the next level, which is really I think fell into that middle frame, was that we wanted our students to be taken care of. And we wanted our faculty and staff to be treated respectfully um, in the process. So we knew that it was possible we would get proposals in which all employees would be dismissed, right? 
but we wanted in that process for them to be treated in such a way. And by res- respectful, that was, you know, euphemism for financially, um, you know, given a, a positive severance and, um, you know, as much help as possible. Now, also context here, at the time, there was a lot of hiring going on in Boston and um, the unemployment rate was low. And so we felt like it was a, you know, probably for many people at Wheelock, it was the best time to be looking for work elsewhere. Um, I'm sure they, I'm sure our staff and faculty weren't thinking that because that's never where you feel when you, you know, are staring at the potential of losing your job. But, um, and then, you know, the, the thing we wanted to be really clear about was what was in our, um, you know, our not even important to us. And the board and the members of the strategic option committee agreed that the campus itself wasn't that important. And in some cases, I can imagine merger situations where people would say, well, you have to keep the campus, right? That That's the heart of who we are. And I've seen in, instances like that. The people at Wheelock did not feel that way. They felt like the preparation of teachers and social workers did not depend on a particular place. And so, and we we even played some thought experiments, like what if someone were to merge with us and want us to move everything to uh, Chicago? Would we be, would that be okay? And, um, you know, people winced a little and thought about it. And does it have to be Boston? Um but in the end, they felt like that was not uh, an important uh, factor, that, um, that there was something more important than the real estate, which was the people. And so it really was identity, legacy, the people involved, and then the rest of the elements, if you will. And, and knowing you and, and, and reading the book, I, I would have thought one of the most challenging things from a leadership perspective for this is you, you and Mary both mentioned the, the, your commitment to leading with transparency, authentic leadership, and yet the sensitivity of a process like this d- doesn't lend itself necessarily to that, particularly in those crucial phases. So I'm curious, how did you approach the right balance of that? I mean, you were in the somewhat fortunate situation that some of this, even if people hadn't fully heard it, the board had looked at, there had been stuff before you got there, but, but balancing that, I, I would have thought must've been extremely difficult. It was, it was very difficult, David. We, um, so Wheelock had gone through a couple of years of training around shared governance, um, at, that, as you know, comes up in, in questions around accreditation and, um, there had been some consultants that had come in, some some who you, you know well because they're they're people in our field who, who play a large role in our development as leaders, even who you know really tried hard to help faculty and trustees and and uh, understand how shared governance works. And um, in the end, uh, while we wanted for sure for faculty and staff to have a voice. Ultimately, the board of trustees and in Wheelock's case, because it had an old um, New England kind of structure where we had a corporation and then a subset of the corporation was the board of trustees. um, The corporation ultimately has to make a decision about the future of the college. And 
So we created a strategic options committee that included alumni, faculty, staff, and trustees. Um, and everyone signed NDAs. And it was within that group that we made really tough decisions about um, the future of the college. Over the course of the summer in 2017, as it became clearer and clearer that we were going to move toward merger, I also asked the um, Senate co-chairs to sign NDAs. And I um, shared information with them about where we were in the process, in part because I needed them, when the time came to make announcements, I needed them to be knowledgeable and to be able to answer questions. Um, but I mean, I could tell you all of this and we could talk about how you put that together. And we had a communications, uh, team helping us. I redeployed our, our high, our vice presidential level administration to focus more internally than externally and everything. Um, in the end, it's, it's just difficult, right? There's no simple, um, way to say it. It's going to surprise and shock somebody because they weren't at the table making the decisions. But as I often told faculty, that was not their that was not their role, right? That the role in shared governance at high in higher education, uh, the role of the future of the college and financial structure of the college is with the board of trustees. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I was curious as as you were getting to the point where you decided. BU was your partner, and then you were trying to figure out how much do we resolve before we go public, and then what are we going to figure out after? One of the more amazing moments for me in in the interviews for this podcast, one of our our classmates from the the Harvard class for new presidents, Tom O'Reilly down the street, who you know well at Pine Manor, was when he shared that he and the BC president hammered out the entire thing in, in 48 hours of intense work, having never met each other before and, and had all of these answers. And, and so I was, I was curious because, because some of the issues that I know were hard for you after the announcement was not having answers to some pretty pivotal things like, you know, are students at Wheelock going to pay the same tuition um, that they were to, to finish at BU? you know, just what's going to happen to faculty. And so how did you come to the, the, the sort of figure out, here's what we, we have to know to, to be able to go public. And then these are still crucial, but they're going to wait and, 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 and how to sort that through. So the, the, the beginning of that was we gave interested institutions a month to write a detailed proposal. We asked for 10 page proposals and we told them uh, as they thought about how Wheelock would become part of their vision, um, we gave them the categories to speak to so that there was some level, kind of deep level of processing that they would have to um, engage in before writing those proposals. And and the range of proposals, um, they were they were distinct. Let me put it that way. They were not cookie cutter. Um, you know, BU was at one end. Um, we also had institutions who would have liquidated everything and really focused on legacy and identity and essentially said, you know, we would name a building after Lucy Wheelock and we would invest the endowment in scholarship and faculty chairs, et cetera. So it was, you know, they were, they were, they were really um, distinct proposals. 
Um, but once the decision was made that the best proposal was BUs because it it hit all of those must-haves and many of the we'd like to have uh, columns. Um, President Brown and I spent much like um, President O'Reilly and President O'Leary, I think his name is at BBC. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we spent a lot of time on the phone together in the summer of 17, hammering out details of, uh, and I, I'll give you a couple of nitty gritty decisions. So the tuition one was a big one, right? Like what will happen to students coming from Wheelock? We attracted a student body that could not afford to go to BU. It just, you know, the, the tuition rate was just too high. So we wanted their financial packages to be kept um, the same as they were at Wheelock. So getting to that level of detail around students, making sure that every student had a plan for their finishing their degree. Um, what would happen to tenured faculty at Wheelock? And um, and then here's a here's a a really good example of a detail we hammered out. So the president's house at Wheelock and uh, that historic residence hall that were both in Brookline, Massachusetts, um, were sold in the midst of all of this. That's actually what got the headline in the Boston Globe that we were selling property. They didn't know about the murder. They just knew we were selling property. But we negotiated that the proceeds of all of that would be added to the endowment that would become part of the new college. So a lot of detail went into, and and all of that was done prior to the initial letter of intent being signed. So when we announced on August 29th, much of the details of the merger had already been um, laid out. And we had good legal support um, for that process. And I think um, given, and this is true for uh, President O'Reilly too, is that you know, when you're in an asymmetric merger, the potential risk of losing everything, right, really losing any of your must-haves is high. So you need to be sure you've got the right kind of representation to help guide you through that process. So, yeah, it was uh, it was quite a summer. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. And, and what, one of the things you mentioned that you hammered out was was what happened to your tenured faculty. And, and the solution there was that I think you said all but one got a permanent job with BU, but not a tenured job. And so I, I was just curious about that distinction. And um, I believe the way you resolved that was them creating something they hadn't had previously, which was clinical professors or, or permanent roles. And so that seems like quite a heavy lift in the home institution to, to get that created. So I, I was curious about that dynamic and the solution. Yeah. So uh, in advance of the going through any of the process, we offered a retirement option for a lot of very uh, veteran faculty. I think uh, 14 of them took that option. And then um, uh, BU could not offer tenure directly to our tenured faculty because going back to that shared governance issue, um, the issue of tenure in the BU handbook, faculty handbook, lies with the faculty. They make the recommendation about whether or not someone is tenured. And so everyone at Wheelock who was in who was tenured had the option of choosing to go up for tenure at BU. Um, and everyone chose except one person. Everyone chose everyone chose not to because they felt like they 
you know, we, Wheelock and B were two very different places. One really focused on excellence in teaching. Right. BU is much more focused on research. So um, I think they felt like it was not going to be possible for them to be successful to go through a traditional 10-year mm-hmm. review process. Um, and, and absolutely, uh, it was a, a real commitment on the part of BU to give those um, 21 faculty or uh, 31 faculty members indefinite employment um, as clinical faculty. And um, I, I think you and I both know it still stings, right? Even, even though they have the benefit of tenure, those 31 people did not get tenure. And I think that remains, you know, that's, that's something they will, they earned tenure at Wheelock and then it was taken away from them. And I'm sensitive to that. I get it. Um, that doesn't feel good. Yep. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about a couple of the things that seemed like they were important in the, the process after you'd worked out those th- elements of the deal and, and, and bringing it to fruition, helping people deal with it. The, the existence of an ombudsperson at Wheelock and whether that had been there prior to this and that was something that you were utilizing. And then I thought it was very interesting, the notion of story circles um, and using that type of uh, of process drawn from Native Americans to, to, to help people kind of process. Could you say a little about those two? Yeah. So uh, uh, going back to the We Build day that you mentioned, um, the Wheelock faculty n- know knew that it was really important to have ways of processing and thinking about and addressing their um, anxieties, angers. Um, so we had actually hired the ombudsperson before any mention of a merger, um, but she played a major role in helping faculty, staff, um, and students go through the process of the merger. And she was available for them. Um, and I think she even offered training about how to prepare yourself for a job search. Um, she was involved really in, in a number of detailed uh, elements of the merger process in the year during which the merger had been announced and we were just working on all the details. She was um, very engaged and being a professional ombuds allowed her to sort of look at us as a, uh, as you know, many clients who needed help and resolution around issues. Um, the story circle came from one of our social, I believe one of our social work faculty who had been involved in this kind of social, uh, social stories and um, story circle kind of resolution of issues um, and used it, I think, on more than one occasion to give people the opportunity to tell their story, to have people their Wheelock story, if you will, and to give people a chance to use that group dynamic to, you know, share what was really a very emotional time for many of our faculty and staff and students for that that matter. So um, it seemed like a very effective thing to do. It worked for a lot of people. Many people didn't engage in it, but for those who needed it, it was very beneficial. As as you look back on it, and obviously you, you, did a lot of thinking at the time and, and more as you were writing the book. Are, are, is there anything you would have done differently in retrospect in terms of how you manage the process of the deal from first thinking that you wanted to look for a partner to, to completing it? 
No, I, I think, it, well, I, um, probably. <laughs> there are probably things I would have done differently. I, I um, But I think in the end, when you look back at these major, I mean, you know, it was closing a college. It, it, this is... For and for many people, I mean, I have I had donors, David, who had given more than fifty million dollars to Wheelock over the years in building projects and scholarships. And I mean, I you know drove to New Hampshire and met with her and sort of said, "Here's what we're thinking about doing. Tell me how this feels to you." Um, I don't know. I mean, I, it's a really good question. I'm asked this from time to time. What would I have done differently? I think we picked the right partner for sure. And I know I say that because I'm now an employee of BU. It probably sounds a bit, um, uh, I don't know, uh, like it's a conflict of interest, but I would say we picked the best proposal. And I believe that BU has been a tremendously strong partner in this process. We had a 92% graduation rate of the students who transitioned uh, to BU. I think that says something really important about um, what we did for the students at Wheelock. Um, but all of that said, I'm, I'm, you know, could we have talked more about it with the faculty in, in the year leading up to it? Yes, I think we could have. Although we did talk about the budget challenges. And in a May meeting in 2017, I did say to the faculty and college, when asked, should we be looking for other jobs? I said, I can't answer that um, except to say it's possible that you should be looking for other jobs. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, anyway, you know, we've had some, we've had some challenges and I'm sure there are many people out there who still feel like we should have remained open and tried to do our best to keep the college open. And I did have alumni say to me, it would have been better for you to close the college and not merge. So many people have different opinions about the outcome. And um, there's definitely no way you're going to please everybody. That's no. comes with the job regardless of this decision. Yes, right? that's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm curious, you mentioned the 92% success rate of your students. What other th- measures have you used to say, has it gone the way you hoped in terms of carrying on the mission, the impact? What are the, what are the things you've looked at and how has it unfolded relative to, to what you were thinking? Yeah, I think, um, so a couple of things. One is we've, um, as I mentioned, I think a little earlier, BU gave the entire um, endowment to the new college um, at BU, the, the Wheelock College. They have um, made repairs and retained the campus. They've um, retooled some of the residence halls and created now their revenue generating residential places for graduate students. Um, our faculty uh, have uh, you know, merged with the, the BU School of Education faculty and we've created a new strategic plan. We've created a guide star for the next 10 years of the college that honors both former institutions, I believe. We've really reinvested in the city of Boston. We're, we're working hard to create a partnership with a geographic region of the city of Boston and really 
you know, I think live up to the legacy of Lucy Wheelock, but the legacy of many other leaders that were part of BU prior to the merger. Um, and we've, you know, begun hiring strong faculty from across the country and uh, I think have uh, done an admirable job over the last few years of hiring senior faculty, but a lot of junior faculty as well who are, um, are helping build our programs, make them stronger. So, you know, what we really wanted was a college that reflected Lucy Wheelock's ideals and the mission, um, uh, but would be more than that, right? And would take advantage of the uh, many amazing resources that a place like Boston University has. And I think we've been able to do that. Now, are we done? No, I, I think there's still a lot of work to be done, but, um, but I think we're well on our way to those things happening. And we've, you know, we've, uh, I'll tell you one brief little story. When the merger occurred, um, there had been an endowment that was in, under the control of an, an alumni group called the, it was um, the Alumni Endowment, I guess it was called, 2.6 million, which started as from the sale of Lucy Wheelock's house in Roxbury. I think $20,000 was the initial principal in it. And, it was 2.6 million at the time of the merger. And that alumni group wanted to control that on their own without BU's um, interference. And BU allowed that to happen or you know, didn't, didn't contest it. Um, last year, that group came back to us and offered us a, um, a scholarship of a hundred and plus thousand dollars um, and told us that they were committing to supporting scholarship support at Wheelock uh, in, in perpetuity. So. I think that was an indication that they they really believe in what we're doing and was a, a real relief to me because that could have gone south for us um, and, and not in a, you know, could have been very negative and doesn't look like it'll be that way. Yeah. And, and David, you mentioned with when talking about the tenure process and the faculty coming over, the difference in, you know, what had been the historic priorities, the culture of the two institutions. Um, in terms of, you know, a focus on teaching a small institution, BU, one of the largest private universities, very much a focus on, on, on the research and scholarship. Um, how have you been able, in, in blending their school of ed and, and, and the or, or original Wheelock, how have you been able to meld those two cultures and, and manage what I would imagine would be some significant, you know, difference in expectations and, and approaches? Uh, well, I'll start by saying that, you know, we, we, we were merged with the School of Education. And so that was a group of people who also took education very seriously. So and were, I think, um, and had great relationships with uh, field based partners for practicum and such. So we weren't as far apart as one might believe we would be. It wasn't like we were merging a an education school with the School of Engineering or the School of Medicine at BU sure. which might be a lot more focused on research. Um, <laughs> that would be a hell of a challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but but I would say um, also BU is a largely um, tuition dependent institution too. More than sixty percent of their budget is tuition, and so they mm -hmm. the provost there takes teaching very seriously and. Um, and there's a premium put on strong teaching at BU as well. So I would say um, at the outset of the answering this question, the two cultures weren't as different as people might believe they were. Um, 
But I do think our, our more senior faculty in the clinical lines have taken a number of leadership roles at Wheelock because they had been leaders in the college prior to the merger. And a lot of our new hires are focused on research and scholarship. And we also at Wheelock had some faculty who were already strong researchers, and they've continued their research at BU with more support than they could ever have at, uh, at Wheelock. We, we tried a number of things, though. We paid for people to go for lunch together in small groups, right? And just to really get to know one another at a deep level. And, and quite honestly, Boston's not that big of a city. Many of our faculty had crossed paths in projects or um, other organizations that they belonged to. I think there are some, uh, some serious concerns on the part of contract faculty at BU who were worried that with new faculty coming in with indefinite um, employment that they might be the first to go. That has not played out that way. Um, you know, fortunately, our enrollment continues to grow. And so we've not had a, a, a need to re- release any faculty. Um, so, and, and a number of faculty from both Wheelock and the former School of Education have retired on time, which has also reduced the pressure of concern that faculty may have had that they would lose their jobs. So... But also, I think it's just a matter of time, David. You know, the building a guide star and a strategic plan was a big cultural bonding experience for our faculty, probably more important than any strategic plan I've been involved with in the past, right? People were taking it very seriously and really wanted to be involved in that. Yep. And we invited leaders from around the country to come in and talk to us about what a College of Education and Human Development today should look like. Um, and that got faculty thinking, oh, we really are building something new. You know, how, how can I be part of this? And so, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a journey. The pandemic has been a real challenge, as it has been for everyone. But we're hoping that when we return in the fall, um, that people will be ready to recommit themselves to residential teaching and to learning together and growing this new college. David, you've been really generous with your time. I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the book itself um, yeah. b- before we we stop. So first, I, I'm curious, I mean, having gone through this grueling process, uh, you know, all in, in your first couple of years there, what made you and Mary decide to write the book uh, so soon after that? Um, so you, you may have heard me say this, David, to others, but I did not want to write this book. Um, and partly it was because it was an emotional uh, very emotional time. Mary uh, Churchill is brilliant. And she said, if we don't write it now, we won't remember what happened. And so she really, she gathered notes. She took meeting minutes, you know, from various meetings that we had. I put all my board meeting minutes and agendas in. And we began to structure it and started talking with Johns Hopkins Press about the possibility of this book. Um, I worried that people would see it as a puff piece or, you know, something that was to make me look good or um, when really what we wanted to do is tell tell the story from a leadership perspective and to try to illustrate through one case, like one deep dive into a case, the challenges associated with today being a leader, leaders in a small institution. And you and I both have many colleagues who have 
gone through this struggle now. And um, I'm grateful that many of them have uh, called me, talked to me, wanted to, you know, let me know how they were thinking about these things. Um, so yeah, it was it was not an easy decision to move forward on the book. And there were moments where I actually dragged my feet on some chapters and Mary had to light a fire under me a little bit to get me to get ideas down. But, you know, there are, there are times that, you know, it was tearful um, as you play these things out and sure. realize what happened to people and the challenges associated uh, with this kind of decision. Yep. And I'm curious, um, given that emotional content and whatnot, the choice of the title, When Colleges Close, um, because, you know, to me, one of the, the really positive things of the book is, is that you, you preserve the mission. If anything, you amplified it through what you were able to negotiate and, and having the resources of BU behind it, what you did. And so the, the very title suggests in some ways a, a negativity relative to the, the outcome. And so I, I'm curious, I'm sure you must have debated it, why, why you ended up uh, choosing that one to describe. Yeah, you know, throughout 2016-17, we kept using the term partnership, right? We kept using the term partnership. And then as we got closer to the to August of 17, the board said, you know, we need to stop talking about partnership. This is not a partnership, right? We are entering into a merger. Um, and even that is somewhat euphemistic because as some would say, it was more like an acquisition, right? Large institution taking over small institution. So the importance of language is not lost on us in every detail. And in the middle of um, the 1718, the final year of Wheelock, Mary said to me, David, we need to start calling this a closure because the um, Department of Higher Education in Massachusetts will call it a closure our accrediting body, NETCHI, will call it a closure. The attorney general's office will call it a closure. Um, in the end, on June 1st, Wheelock College will be closed. And um, we should get used to this language now, right? We should start talking about it. it. Yes, we will preserve the mission and such in a new college at BU, but it's not Wheelock College. It's not the historic, what we now refer to as historic Wheelock College. So again, a little bit of brilliance on Mary Churchill's part to really begin to get us to use a language that I think was important. I think she was right. And so when it came to writing the book, which obviously didn't happen until much later, she said, we should talk about this from a closure perspective. It's a closure. And we shouldn't pretend it isn't because that's indeed what happens. Even a good outcome of a closure is still it's emotional. It can be hurtful. It, you know, you're taking people, I'm sure you've worked with alumni many times, David, where what they remember about their institution was their four years, right? That's what they remember. The institution could be very different after that, but that's what they remember. And for us, our alumni, you know, they saw it as a closure. It, Wheelock College is no longer there. So that's how we decided. I think, I think the, the, um, editor at Johns Hopkins also said, you know, this will, this is what you're doing and you should be honest about it. And um, anyway, so that's how we came to that title. Well, I'm really grateful for you, you and Mary writing the book and for you taking the time to share so much of your insights here. What I would offer to you as, as 
a, a proposal is because I'm sure this book, given the, the the many more mergers and closures we're likely to see, will have many additions. So yeah. I would I would offer for edition two. I would go with when colleges close and are reborn. Ah, that's good. That's good. We we, I be a good- we had asked you before we uh, went to press. Well, I, I'm giving it to you for free. No, no copyright. But, but David, thank you so much for taking the time. It's, it's been wonderful to connect with you and really appreciate it. Hope you have a great rest of the summer. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Take care.